House of Mystery presents Inside Writing, the radio show where authors discuss their writing process in all genres. Now, joining us, like we said earlier, we have uh, uh, author and a journalist. I, I say that because th this last book is just incredible, and uh, it really, it really, um, it really caught me listening to it. There's a lot of parts that were very real to me, um, so I found it an excellent book, and we recommend it. And the book is uh, Dad Reckoning, and um, our author and guest is uh, Caitlin Rother. Thank you for being here. Well, thank you for having me, and thank you for the kind words on, on the, how much you enjoyed the book. I appreciate that. Well, yeah, and, and it's just kind of, uh, for me, it was um, listening to the events happening in the childhood, in the, in the era, early era, was really, um, really, really, um, I felt it. It was really shocking. You know what I mean? It, mm -hmm. I, had, I had a similar childhood myself. So, um, oh, wow. Well, not... But yeah, it, people say that. I was like, well, I, I'm okay. You know, I turned out okay. I, I made it through, and I didn't feel like going out and killing anyone. So that's what I was going to say. And you didn't go kill anyone, so that's good. Uh, no, we were talking about that before the show, actually, um, Mike and I, because in a, in a lot of these um, cases, you know, we look at the childhood and how how bad of a childhood they had and maybe what happened to them, and uh, a lot of places want to blame that on why they turn into a killer. Well, they, yeah. as, um, as I discussed in the book, and there's a courtroom scene with a witness, a psychologist, who discusses that, actually, and says it's really a matter of resilience. And so, some, so like Skylar DeLeon's sister turned out to be a phlebotomist and never even really had a speeding ticket. Meanwhile... Skyler ends up, you know, killing three people. So, and they grew up in the that, same environment. And they pretty much, well, yeah. Skyler was older, um, and had they had different mothers, but yeah, they grew up in the same environment. But the father was meaner to Skyler, mm. and you know, made Skyler stand in a corner and shoved toothpicks under Skyler's nails um, mm. for biting them, and told Skyler that um, that he was no good when he was a little boy, and when he was putting on dresses he made fun of them and said if you want to be a girl i'll treat you like a girl just like that you know just mm -hmm. not good parenting from a you know federal con ex-con you know drug trafficker who had guns and piles of cocaine everywhere and colombian you know drug lords hanging out at the house that kind of thing you know fun, fun normal childhood you mean it's yeah. not i mean <laughs> well i didn't quite have the drug thing but i'll tell you um I, my father was definitely that way, and and I was the fourth wow. child, and the older ones were all men, men, you know, and mechanics right. and all this sort of stuff, and I was not. I was the thinker, and I wanted to do uh, take music. <laughs> mm -hmm. I, I, you know, it was like, oh, we're going to make you into a man, and you know, and the comments were stuff like, well, maybe I'll, you know, uh, pee on you, and you'll at least smell like a man. Oh. That was that was where. Oh, God. So when I was listening yeah. to a lot of it, it was like, oh wow, yeah. this is just. I, I remember this, but yeah. like I said, I I came out pretty happy. I'm I'm pretty over it. I I chose at a certain time to move on with life, mm -hmm. uh, right? To to go forward and live my life happy with what I have left and not right. hold on to right. that. Um, did you did you find that in cases like this and even others you come across 
that the childhood has a big effect, or is it just part of the symptom? Or where do you place that yourself in in the when whole? When somebody asks me a question of what do you find in common between you know these stories where people turn into killers, what I often say is bad parenting, and that seems to me to be the most common thread. And you know, depending on, it doesn't even seem to matter what type of murder and how they carry it out, but the fact that they are able to murder somebody else, it, it, it's, you know, I don't mean to be so flip about it, but I just mean that in every single case, and I can describe to you and analyze for you in each case what the parents did wrong, um, you know, and, and not, I'm not, you know, the parents yeah. maybe didn't know any better, and, you know, in some cases, grew up in a horribly dysfunctional environment themselves and it's not that they're you know bad people it's you mm-hmm. know sometimes tragic that they and uh, it's cyclical you know and that they learn bad habits and are brought up in a dysfunctional environment um, and in some cases they're you know born into this because there's mental illness or there's you know the in this case Skylar's case um, Skylar's mother was using drugs while she was pregnant with Skylar um, and continued to use drugs, and I believe also probably while she was breastfeeding, if she breastfed, she didn't sound like the kind of person who would breastfeed probably to the bottle, oh. but still, <laughs> there's still going to be drugs in the, in the milk. But regardless of all that, um, yeah, bad parenting, and in this case, um, even the Skylar's father even said, wow, I thought I was bad, and, you know, we, Skylar turned out even worse than I did. <laughs> so. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, I, I sort of put it to that. I, I, your father, like mine, I, did, I don't think he wanted to be that way. It was just how he was created. How, you know, so it's just kind of a, you're right, it's cyclical. It's something they pick up. Um, but, you know, anyway. Um, what I have one the, more thing I just wanted to, I just wanted to add one more thing. Sure. The other thing, which is a little bit of a sensitive topic, um, probably a controversial thing, but I've kind of come... After all these years of covering and following this case, I, um, I've been a, a professional writer and journalist. Um, I don't want to date myself, but let's say <laughs> 32 years. That's a long time. Um, and, wow, and you a, started and when you were author. 10. Yeah, thank you. Um, and an author for, you know, 15, 16 years of, of that. And so um, this case I've actually been following the, longer than any other case Ever. I was I was in newspapers, and, you know, you don't stick with cases generally that long when you're in a newspaper story because you write it and you get out. But with these books, um, sometimes they take a while to get to court. But this one, I've come to kind of a different perspective over time um, and learning about not just about Skylar, but just about gender dysphoria in general and, and reading up on some of these other inmates in other states that um, – that helped contribute to the court precedents that, that got us to this point where in California now um, inmates are, transgender inmates are able to apply for taxpayer subsidized gender confirmation surgery. And that's because these people are in jail, in prison, and they try to cut off their own genitals. They try to mutilate themselves, and this is after already, you know, killing somebody else and hurting other people. And so a lot of people don't feel sympathetic, but in fact, these people are really messed up, I mean, emotionally. And so, I mean, I don't think a lot of people want to think about this, but the fact of the matter is the reason that the, the court decisions came down is that they've really 
had to accept that gender dysphoria is a very, it's a severe condition that causes extreme emotional distress. These people try to kill themselves, they try to mutilate themselves, and they, you know, can hurt other people too. But the reason that they end up getting these operations now, at least in California, not very many are approved, but they can get them, is because it's such a serious disease. And I, you know, they, the, the, in the courtroom it's always, you know, these people are evil, and there's no room for any mental illness or any kind of other disorder that it comes out of a medical book because, you know, this is all very controversial. People don't want to think about this. People certainly don't want to, their taxpayer dollars used for this. But it's the Constitution that these inmates must get, quote-unquote, adequate medical care, and that's, that's the heart of all this. But I've kind of come to look at it differently. Like, you know, part of the reason that Skylar DeLeon likely killed these people is, you know, partially at least stemming from from this disorder, um, gender dysphoria. Well, I think it's interesting that you brought that up because it is part of the motive, and maybe you could help the listeners by explaining a little bit about what the crime actually was and what their scheme was. Because reading right. about it, okay. it's uh, it's very it's almost difficult to believe until you actually realize it's true. And the reason that um, that I want to explain this, I want I want people. I'm just going to preface my comments with this. I am not being sympathetic to Skylar DeLeon. I don't want anyone to think that. Um, Skylar killed three people. They were, by all accounts, super sweet, innocent, genuine, happy people. They were innocent. They didn't deserve this. I'm not in any way trying to excuse Skylar's behavior. I am just trying to explain it. So, right. Tell us about the crime because it does. the, the motive okay, plays yes, a okay. pivotal role in that. So Skylar um, – now, this is a little bit tricky. I want to kind of get this out of the way. Skylar, during this whole case, was a he. Um, Skylar had – you know, wanted to get this surgery, but was still identifying as a man. So it's it's kind of tricky in an interview like this because, as of a couple months ago, Skylar is now legally a she. Mm. So she's on hormones, living in a men's prison at San Quentin. Um, but but Skylar is now a she. So um, and the proper journalistic approach to this is to call Skylar a she. So if I flip back and forth, it's difficult because for for the whole book that I wrote originally, because this is a reissue and there's 30 pages of new material because there have been all these breaking news developments and interesting um, changes at the state level in these prisons um, with regard to how they treat transgender inmates. But um, So if I go back and forth, it's just to kind of explain that it's yeah. kind of difficult as I'm telling the story. But so the crime, Skylar wanted to have this operation. Skylar was married to a woman named Jennifer um, Henderson de Leon, and they had had one little girl together, and Jennifer was pregnant with um, a little boy. And Skylar and Jennifer were about $100,000 in debt because they were just these crazy spenders, and they didn't earn any money. Skylar didn't know what to do with excuse me, with himself at the time because uh, all he ever learned from his father was how to lie and cheat and to steal, essentially. Um, Dad was moving around the whole time Skylar was growing up, so he didn't really get a good education. They were always trying to stay ahead of the cops. So all Skylar knew how to do was to steal money, and, um, you know, in this case, he planned. He'd already killed one person, which uh, the detectives learned as they were in the middle of this investigation that, 
he'd already killed one person a year earlier, someone he'd met in jail while he was um, on a work furlough program, took the guy down to Mexico, slit his throat, left, left him by the side of the road to bleed out after taking $50,000 from him. Mm-hmm. So that, you know, he, clearly he's capable of this. Jennifer knew that. Uh, he bought her a ring, and um, they paid off some debt. So here we are a year later. Skyler wants to buy – Skyler wants to, to uh, get a boat and have some kind of charter business. And so he and Jennifer work out this whole scheme to um, get this boat, pretend to be buyers, take them out um, to sea on a sea trial to – you know, supposedly to test out the boat, take them down, handcuffs, tasers, make them sign power of attorney documents, um, tie them to the anchor uh, through the anchor overboard with Tom and Jackie attached. And, and they were alive. They drowned, essentially. They, they were pulled to the bottom of the ocean floor. He took the boat out uh, 35 to where it was, I think, 3,500 feet deep. And he had learned this by taking scuba diving lessons um, and basically told them, you know, if you sign these power of attorney documents, we'll let you live. But then they blindfolded him, gagged him, and then, you know, tied them to each other and then threw the anchor over and the, and then they died. And it's, you know, the most heinous, most horrible, imaginable way to die, honestly. I, I just think it was so brutal. And he had, you know, no remorse at all at the time, according to uh, the, the witness who testified against Skyler and, and Jennifer. And to get into that issue of how cold, cold-blooded they were, can you tell us a little bit about the ruse they used with a child when they came to the boat? So Skyler, um, Skyler had come, um, had come out to uh, several times to meet with Tom and Jackie, and I guess early on, um, I guess, kind of felt that they weren't really on board with trusting Skylar. Skylar said, well, I was, uh, I, was an, I was a child actor. I made a bunch of money um, being on Mighty Morphin Power Rangers and let them believe that he was one of the original Power Rangers, which he wasn't. He had two non-speaking roles because he couldn't remember any of his parts, <laughs> any of his words, any of his lines. <laughs> so basically, you know, and he didn't have any money. He was in debt. So basically... In order to gain their trust, he called Jennifer, and Jennifer's pregnant. She brought down their daughter in a stroller, and here she's pregnant. And he says, here's my wife, you know. And, and so um, Jennifer, you know, got into conversation with Jackie, and Jackie had had a motorcycle accident with her first husband, and the motorcycle accident killed him and badly injured her to the point where she wasn't able to have children of her own. So, you know, they just basically used their trust to um, basically make them believe that they were people, you know, that they weren't. And Just a normal family. Purchasing, yeah, that they were going to go live the American dream and charter out this boat, live on the boat. So it's, it's uh, and, you know, the ironic thing is that Tom was a retired probation officer. Mm-hmm. But the people that he'd worked with were not killers. He'd worked with a very small-time, you know, small-time crooks <laughs> so I guess he didn't really know what he was dealing with and and the other thing about Skyler is Skyler uh, I didn't even realize it till till I saw Skyler on TV but this is um, right before the sentencing after the conviction and before the sentencing 
in 2009, Skylar went on TV, was interviewed by Dateline, 48 Hours, a bunch of different shows, and had this really high, effeminate voice. And what people said was they just had no idea that Skylar could be so dangerous because, you know, Skylar seemed so harmless and charming, you know. Well, and that's really part of the most frightening aspect of this, where you're talking about the cold-blooded nature of them tying them yeah. to the anchor and throwing them right. overboard. I, I remember hearing about this story when it happened, but I kind of had forgotten about it. So preparing for this, I was, you know, I couldn't get that out of my head afterwards after I had read that. And you actually interviewed Skylar, and I read something yeah, that you wrote. Time, four times at the Santa Ana jail before. You know, while Skyler was still presenting as a man, with, couldn't couldn't stop talking about wanting to cut off his own penis. And then well, I went and interviewed Skyler while she was now up in um, in death row, and I was locked into a cage in a visitor's cage with Skyler for two and a half hours, and they took the handcuffs off her and locked us in together. And I was a little freaked out by that. I have well, to that's say. why I wanted to ask you, because you had written in there that you said you were worried yeah. that, that the pen you were writing with or the spoon that yeah. she was eating with would end up in your throat. And usually, when I hear somebody say something like that, it sounds kind of melodramatic, but <clears throat> with this situation, no. <laughs> that person is, you can't, you don't know what that person's capable of. Right. They well, did the worst. So, yeah, so basically, the way that it works is, you know, you go to visit somebody. I got in touch with Skylar through somebody else who's on the outside, um, who's also mentioned in, in the updated portion of the book, William Harder, who was a murderabilia dealer and was visiting Skylar and had some kind of bizarre sexual attraction to Skylar. Um, I don't even want to go into the background of this person, but um, anyway, posted pictures of himself with Skylar on Facebook and somebody pointed them out to me and I couldn't even figure out where Skylar was in the picture because there was this woman <laughs> in the picture with William Harder and I just I said, Oh my god, that's Skylar I couldn't believe it because Skylar had her hair over in a side ponytail and was smiling and looked so happy and didn't really really look anything like what she'd looked like before because um, previously, she had been a bodybuilder and, you know, in good shape and looked like a man, you know, and now there's no beard and a um, little mascara and the side ponytail thing. You know, that's what that's what threw me. I just couldn't figure out what I was looking at. I just went, oh, my God, wow. So anyway, um, I this guy said, well, you know, Skylar wants avocados, so bring enough money to buy Skylar food. I'm like, okay. <laughs> I mean, it was a little bizarre. So I, you know, and they're not allowed to touch money. So before I went in, I went and bought the stuff because that was the agreement to go. Because, you know, you're meeting them during a lunch period. They don't get to eat. So, it, you know, to be a good human being, you buy somebody food just like you buy somebody a cup of coffee. And anyway, so, but in the process, I had to bring in this plastic uh, fork spoon called a spork mm -hmm. so that, Skylar could scoop out the avocado because otherwise, how do you get it out, right? To put it, I had to buy the quesadilla for the avocado to go on. And so I was worried about. I basically said, "Well, I'm not bringing in the plastic knife. That's for sure. I mean, I'm not, I'm not that 
you know, but the, maybe the spork, you know, would be harder to really get into my neck or into in, anywhere. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. I don't mean to be slight about it, but I, this is literally yeah. what went on in my mind. And then we get on inside, and they had taken away my um, writing utensils. There's a whole bunch of rules when you go to prison. You're not allowed to wear an underwire bra because they're concerned that it's a weapon. They're going to take the, the iron. The, they're going to take the wire out of it, and somebody's going to use it as a shank. So I literally, when I went to go visit John Gardner, who um, raped and killed these two teenage girls here in San Diego County, um, Amber Dubois and Chelsea King, I saw the guards tell this 80-year-old, 70, 80, 90, I don't know how old she was, woman with a walker, to go into the bathroom and take her bra off. And she carried it back out, and they literally took it apart, and they took the wire out because it's, you know, it could be, it could be passed into the to the prisoner, and the prisoner would then have a weapon. So they took away my pencil and my sheets of paper, which I was allowed to bring in, um, and they gave me a notebook and they gave me a pen. So I had this pen and a, and a notepad, rather, in this locked cage with Skylar, and, and I was talking to her about um, her room, and she you know, asked to use my pen to draw me like a diagram. And I'm like, well, I don't think I'm supposed to do that. So I tried to not hand her the pen mm-hmm. <laughs> because yeah. I'm picturing this, right? And then I, she goes, oh, no, it's okay. And I'm like, all right. Because if, if, if you show any fear, it's like a, you know, it's like a dog. Yeah. You don't look yeah. a dog in the eye. You don't put your face close to a, to a dog's face or you get bitten, which has happened to me, by the way, so I know. Um, and And so I was like kind of, casually handed my pen over and I just kind of hoped and waited for the best and she handed the pen back to me and everything was fine (laughs) but I just it did go through my mind I had another incident with with John Gardner the one I was just mentioning who killed and raped and killed those two teenagers I visited him in a in a lunchroom at Corcoran State Prison with in a unit with Charles Manson and I purposely visited on a Saturday because that was the day that Manson had visitors and just didn't have any visitors that day, so I didn't get to meet Charles Manson, who I later wrote a book about as well. But I was sitting across from John Gardner, and I had the same kind of fears that I would say something, and I'd seen him react in court. You can say the smallest thing, they get angry, they reach across, and I just thought he could strangle me, and before the guard could get over there to save me, I could be you know, in the clutches of this person who'd already killed two people. So when you go in, into these situations, you're a visitor. You're not an author or a press person. You know, mm-hmm. the, the, the prisons are not approving your visit. It's it's the inmate who invites you. So there's not really any kind of precautions. And when I was um, covering prisons and, and jails when I worked for the newspaper, I literally had to sign a waiver at, um, because I was going for the newspaper, and I had to sign a waiver that said, I waive my rights, you know, if I get if I get um, kidnapped or abducted or, you know, held hostage by the inmates, you know, I can't hold the prison accountable or whatever. I mean, literally, mm-hmm. this is you're taking your life into your hands when you go into these oh, prisons yeah. as an author, as a journalist. But I just try to put that out of my mind and just do my job. <laughs> so, <laughs> well, you have to think about it. You'd be stupid not to be worried. So so the idea is you just don't purposely confront them or ask them questions that are going to um, cause them to shut down or to get angry at you. I mean, honestly, you just don't. You, I just don't judge them. I, I, every my questions are completely 
uh, I thank them out in advance, and I, I make, I've even taught this in classes. You know, you have to keep judgment. You have to keep any kind of opinions and bias out of your questions and make them as neutral as you possibly can and as non-confrontational as possible so that they think that they can, you know, they can open up a little more, you know. And, and they'll probably lie to you anyway, but at least, you know, you can write about that. Yeah. Or did you feel like um, he would try or he or she would try to manipulate you? Oh, always. You, you know that. I mean, these people are all manipulators. Uh, murderers yeah. are almost always huge. You know, that's why they call them con men, con women. Mm-hmm. So with Skyler, what was interesting is I, you know, usually when I do an interview and somebody can't remember something, I'll give them a little nudge with a trigger of some kind, like a piece of information. Was it this? Was it that? Did you feel this or that? But with Skylar, I realized that she'd get this look on her face, this blank look. And I realized, you know, if I offered her any information, she would just take it and go with that. So it actually wasn't really helpful. She just told me whatever she thought I needed to hear or wanted to hear. Manson was the same way. Um, That's what they do. They basically use whatever information you're giving them and kind of turn it around to give you what they think you want to hear, which is not what you want to hear. You want to hear what they have to say, but they're trying to please you or they're trying to impress you or they're trying to con you or they're trying to, you know, make you believe that they're good people, you know, um, or they're victims. That's another thing they try to do. Yeah, and that's part of the con is to figure out the best way to get to you what will influence you. Right, and what was interesting about Skylar is there were times when she'd get this blank look, and what that meant was, I think, she couldn't figure out what I wanted to hear. Mm-hmm. So it wasn't like she could just answer the question. She didn't know how to answer some of these questions because I just don't, I just don't know if she was capable of forming emotions for some of these questions. I, you know, there was like some sort of blank void in that part of her consciousness where she wasn't able to figure out what I wanted to hear and she didn't know how to answer it because she didn't have any kind of way to formulate a thought in that way. Uh, it was kind of odd. I mean, that's different. She was different in that way than anyone else I've interviewed. And she... I'm sorry, I'll go ahead. I was just going to say, when you come to Skyler's pregnant wife, Jennifer... Uh-huh. How did this affect their relationship? Like, what what did Jennifer know and not know? And right. Well, the interesting thing to me was what was the dynamic between them. So, whenever I have a case like this where you have a couple who are together committing a crime, somebody's got to be in charge. Somebody's got to be the mastermind, right? Now, what was what was interesting? Um, you know, prosec- prosecutors can change their story with different juries, and they purposely severed these two so they had separate trials, which means that in each trial, the person who's on trial is a mastermind. <laughs> it's the mm-hmm. person who's dominant, right? Yeah. And so the other, the jury doesn't know what the other jury was told. So when I, you know, comes to me writing a book, I just try to tell the truth, you know, and I, I report what was said in court and what the strategy was and what the prosecution's theory was that they presented. But at the same time, I want to know what really happened. And that's what I want to tell my readers, and that's what I do. So for me, one of the very first questions that at the heart of this story was, who's, who came up with this, and how did they do it? And I think it's pretty clear that Jennifer knew what was going on. And even if she didn't know everything, she knew enough. 
and that's pretty much what the prosecution said as well, that, okay, where did the $50,000 come from a year ago earlier when this person was killed in Mexico? Where, where did Jennifer think the $50,000 came from out of the blue that she'd get a $10,000 diamond ring out of it mm. when they were in so much debt? You know, she had to have known something was, was up, right? And then she she was, uh, the, the detectives, you know, have phone records that showed that every time Skyler did something um, after, for example, uh, taking these, taking Tom and Jackie and putting them in handcuffs and overtaking them and tying them up, and he went up um, and set the GPS for that place out where I said it was 3,500 feet deep, called Jennifer. So with each, and they could see, um, they did a lot of cross-checking you know, forensically with this different technology, and they could... That's how they tracked out everything that happened. Mm-hmm. So there's mapping that they can do with the location of the cell towers that the signal's pinging off in a certain time with the phone call and then with the GPS being set. And they saw that, that he was checking in with her at every single point. You know, there were 15, 15 times that he called her that day. And the year before, when he killed the other guy, there were 17 times that he called mm-hmm. her. And that's more than he normally called her. <laughs> Yeah. So they were able to to show that they were talking. There was also when they created the power of attorney documents on the um, computer, you know, there's a file that's created, there's a time when that file is created, and then there's a time when it's amended, and then there's a phone call that then correlates with that, and then there are changes to the file made, and, you know, so they, and it was a phone call between them. So they're talking the whole way through. Mm-hmm. And so he's reporting back to her, what, I just did this, you know. Obviously, we don't know exactly what they said, but, you know, it doesn't look so good in court. So we, we, we can assume that that's what was happening. And they admitted their guilt. No, I wouldn't say that. Um, Jennifer never did. Um, oh, okay. But with Skyler, in Skyler's case, um, the, the, he, you know, he was up for the death penalty and Jennifer wasn't. So in order to try to save his client's life, Skyler's attorney made the decision to concede guilt in the guilt phase of the trial. So there's two phases to the trial. There's the guilt phase, and then there's the death phase. Mm-hmm. So if the jury finds that the defendant is guilty, uh, they then move to the death penalty phase of the trial to determine whether or not the, de- the defendant will get the death penalty. And so in order to try to present all this mitigating information about Skyler's abuse and childhood and horrible father and blah, 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 um, he felt that it was a smart tactical decision to concede guilt. Now, when I interviewed Skylar, Skylar said, well, you know, that was, that, was, that was Gary's decision. You know, Skylar says, well, I didn't actually, you know, he didn't really actually admit anything, and he mm-hmm. didn't really kill the guy in Mexico. That was somebody else. And, you know, there's more information that I wasn't allowed to talk about, blah, blah, blah. So, I, yes, technically he conceded guilt, but <laughs> it was the attorney. Yeah. So, and I said yeah. to Skyler, is there anything that you're going to want to say at the sentencing to this family of these people, you know? And I had to word it in such a way, as I said, to not be confrontational and, mm-hmm. you know, not be judgmental, but try to at least get some kind of an answer. Do you feel bad about this? You yeah. know, and I get this kind of blank look. So there was no remorse there. And, um, I'm, you know, and, and that's different from, say, John Gardner, who raped and killed these two teenagers. And... He said to me when we sat down for an interview that lasted five hours, he said, you know, ground rule, I don't want to talk about what I did to these girls. I just don't think there's anything good that would come out of that. 
but he did cooperate, and so did his mother and family, to try because he knew he should be in jail, in prison. Um, knew that he'd probably kill again, and that he he was where he belonged, and that uh, he did admit to it, and for that reason didn't go to trial, didn't get the death penalty. So, um, you know, sometimes killers do have remorse, or at least have regret. <laughs> Mm-hmm. And that's the whole distinction between, you know, do they really feel these things or not, or do they know right from wrong? And are they just upset they got caught? Or are they upset they got caught? Yeah. 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 But I think, you know, I think John Gardner really, you know, knew he did wrong. And um, we had a discussion about the word remorse, and I think it's a hard thing for these these types of people to admit to because I think they don't really know what it is. Mm-hmm. For what it, yeah. you know, it seems that it's a hard thing for them to understand. Well, they and they would have felt it right. before sometime, right? <laughs> Long before your conversation, if they were really remorseful, they would have already gone through right. those feelings. Right. And I wanted to ask you real quick, excuse me for interrupting you, but you uh, you were talking about how Skyler is kind of, I don't know, dodging responsibility or at least not accepting responsibility for what happened. There were some uh-huh. accomplices involved in this yeah. and what what happened yeah. to them um okay so alonzo mccain this was a, a guard that he met in the seal beach jail where he met the guy that he killed as well who was in for counterfeiting um and the day that he went down to mexico with this guy who was already out um skyler was still in and supposed he was supposed to be on a work furlough program he made arrangements to go down to Mexico with this guy and his cousin and, you know, cut his throat, left him by the side of the road, came back across the border, immediately called Jennifer. He and his cousin then go to California Pizza Kitchen to eat dinner and end up going back to the jail two hours late. Now, he called ahead to let Alonzo know he was going to be late, but he ended up showing up two hours late, and Alonzo never really did anything about it. He let him get away with this stuff. He basically was told by Skyler that, you know, he had all this family money and he was in real estate and he was going to help him get all this money. And so he got Alonzo to come along with him on this deal and said, well, these are bad people that we're going to kill. These are bad people. They're drug traffickers. You know, they've hurt other people. You know, we need to take care of them. So Alonzo came with him, bought handcuffs and tasers, and they go on there and they realize they're not big enough to overpower Tom Hawks because Tom Hawks is a big, strong guy who's a bodybuilder. And so they bring a third guy, uh, John F. Kennedy Jr., who is this 40-year-old Long Beach Insane Crips um, older mm-hmm. gang member, right, who is, has a prison record of his own and is supposedly you know, changed his ways and blah, 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 and is, you know, about to become a minister. <laughs> and he gets recruited through another guy that Skyler knows that he meets through a job that he got through Jennifer's father. So he's got people recruiting gang members for him to help be the muscle. And he's got Alonzo, who's, who, you know, trusts him. And so he brings these two guys on the boat and says, you know, this this big strapping black guy who's wearing a kind of a, you know, nice, nice church Sunday clothes. Um, mm-hmm. This is my accountant. <laughs> That's what he tells Tom. And Alonzo's just, a, you know, a friend who he's brought along before. 
and he's just a tall, skinny kid, you know, so he doesn't look threatening. And um, JFK is what they nicknamed John F. Kennedy Jr. His nickname was Crazy John, but they called him JFK because it was sort of a joke because he's obviously no way resembled the president who we all know as JFK. But he had this long, bearded braid. You know how they, the gang members have those long, bearded braids? Like it, it, it's yeah. like a Fu Manchu kind of a thing that they braid down. The, and he, anyway, he rolled it up and tucked it underneath so you couldn't tell. Because that's a sure sign that somebody looks like a gang member, right? So yeah. tucked it under and then looked respectable, right? So they show up, and um, that's how they overtook uh, Tom and Jackie, separated them above and below, um, and then overtook them. And, and, and JFK was a pretty big guy, and he was, like, punching Tom and did it a couple times. So. Wow. That was, now, that was it. Oh, and then there was, I mean, in terms of seeing accomplices, I mean, I would say those two are the main accomplices, but there were other people who got dragged into this and were scared to, to tell the truth because they thought Skylar would kill them. There was a woman notary who notarized these papers that the boat sale had occurred and that she had seen it occur when, in fact, Tom and Jackie were already dead. And then there was the um, diving instructor who got the notary to do that, um, and he was the one who gave Skylar the the diving lessons and took him out to the spot where Skyler ultimately dropped the anchor. So they were prosecution witnesses, and but they didn't end up going to prison or anything. Uh, the notary lost her license, and um, the other guy basically just, I think, drank himself into oblivion. I saw him, and he had these purple circles under his eyes. He looked pretty beat. So do, do, now, is he still... Uh, with his wife, so to speak, even though they're in... Oh, no. Like Jennifer, Jennifer divorced Skyler right, almost right away after the trial because clearly her the whole defense was, I didn't know, um, her attorney said, oh, she, she was scared. You know, when she did find out what was going on, it was too late, but it was after the fact, and she was scared to leave, and um, she didn't know the whole time. And then when she found out more, that there was more to it than... You know, it was it was after the fact, but and and she's still claiming that today. She's in fact still claiming innocence. You know, Skyler's a monster. I didn't know. I'm a victim. Blah blah blah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Do Do you think he was transgender before? That he was. Yeah, he when was... you're transgender, I mean, you're transgender. You. you yeah. I, I'm based on my knowledge of you know what Skyler told me and what. The other witnesses testified to in the courtroom. Skyler was dressing up in dresses from when he was, you know, five years old, and I think that's that's generally when you, you a lot of people feel this. So basically, Skyler was struggling with this for a long time, um, and but had to deal with dad and had to deal with a lot of this other stuff. But there was a long time where, um, and, he, and she talked to me about this that. She was struggling with this and ended up going into the Marines thinking, well, maybe this will change my mindset, you know, because she just wasn't settled with it and, you know, didn't know it was torn, you know. And so typically when you're transgender, you know pretty early on and then you struggle with it and some people, you know, get settled with it early on and some people take quite a while to kind of deal with it. So, yes, I think Skylar always kind of knew that and 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 for many years told me she told me that she had been 
um, wanting to get rid of her penis. It didn't feel like it was right with her body and who she was inside. And I just wonder if, if her wife knew that, too. According to Skylar, yes. And But Skylar had all kinds of stories. You know, Skylar, after they started dating, had a motorcycle accident, and as part of the motorcycle accident, um, lost control of, I believe it was the bladder, and so had to wear adult diapers. So what he said was, you know, he told her that he needed to get this operation and wanted to get this operation, and as long as, you know, they had two kids already, she was okay with it. And he also told her that, you know, different stories, who knows whether he actually told her these things or not, but according to him, um, he told her, she told her <laughs> that um, she had, you know, some kind of cancerous uterus or something that had to come out, and then there was the story that the incontinence problem would get solved as part of this operation, and that seems maybe, I don't know if that's true or not, if yeah. medically accurate, but yeah. it would seem like that would be a good, believable thing, that if I were Jennifer, I would understand. I mean, who wants to wear an adult diaper, right? Mm -hmm. And Skyler had needed $15,000 for that operation at the time of the murders. That was part of the plot to get that yeah. money? Basically, Skyler had already found a doctor, and this doctor is a pretty well-known surgeon now, um, is also transgender, and had already had the operation herself, um, going from man to woman. And uh, Marcy Bowers, I believe her name is, and she was originally in Colorado and then now has a practice. Uh, I believe she's still there in Burlingame, California. And this is, I talked with a, a transgender correctional officer at San Quentin who actually had the operation done by this very same doctor. Mm -hmm. So Skyler put down $500 deposit and needed $15,000 to actually have the surgery. And before you can have the surgery, there's a lot of stuff you're supposed to do. So you're supposed to be in therapy. You're supposed to be taking hormones. You're supposed to actually dress like a woman. You're supposed to present as a woman, I think, for two years at least. And so Skylar wasn't doing that. So Skylar was pretty torn with all of this, you know, I think. So it wasn't – Skylar's a messed up person, <laughs> obviously. <laughs> yeah, what a crazy story. Um, yeah, very my crazy. word. And the other thing <laughs> is, you know, the prosecution did not really make this whole transgender surgery thing a big part of the case. In fact, it was almost not part of the case. Mm -hmm. The prosecution pretty much was saying it was just greed. Because, yeah. like I said, in the courtroom, it's, these people are killers are evil. Killers are not mentally ill ever, uh, they're evil. And that's it. It's just very black and white. And so um, I, I always thought that it was kind of strange looking back that Skyler's attorney did not present any kind of mental health examination or any kind of um, results from that. And I asked why, and I was basically told we just didn't think it would help our case. Mm. I think mm. because there were uh, findings, you know, that would show probably that, you know, there was some kind of sociopathy there and, you know, lack of, probably lack of remorse and all kinds of other stuff. I asked Skylar, what are your diagnoses? And she came back with this list. This was when she was still at the jail. And I looked them all up and they actually did seem to fit. And I came back the next week and she said, oh, my therapist wanted me to tell you that the, you know, these are, 
you know, she read me some slightly different ones, and I'm like, okay, well, they they fit though, because I went and checked them out, um, and they're listed in my book. I can't remember them all, but there, you know, there's there were a number of them. So, wow. and then, you know, she also was epileptic when she was growing up, and mm. um, so a number of a number of issues. Yeah. Well, great book and great story, I'll tell you. Do you have a website for people to find you or anything like that? Yes, I do. It's CaitlinRother.com, you know, com. And I have a blog as well on the website, lots of other fun stuff to look at, lots of photos. I'm on Facebook, I'm on Twitter, I'm on Instagram. All over the world. Okay, great. I'm everywhere. <laughs> we'll have that linked up actually on our website so people listening okay, can do one click and pick up the book and go to the website. Wow. Great, great story and great work. And uh, the book is called Dead Reckoning. And our guest and authors, Caitlin Rother. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me on. Appreciate it. To find out more about our show, guests, or to listen to past shows from our archive, please go to www.houseofmysteryradio.com. Show is over for now. Was it as good for you as it was for me? Well, good night. This has been a production of Something Weird Media. I'll be back.